copy of God's Word, let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1. Uh, this spring, uh, the other pastors and I will be working our way through uh, a series on the life of Solomon, uh, subtitled Wisdom and Folly in God's Kingdom. Uh, one of the things that's striking about Solomon's life is that he was given this amazing gift of wisdom, uh, and yet we'll see uh, towards the end of his life, and there are hints, even in the run-up towards 1 Kings chapter 11, uh, this incredibly wise individual was actually profoundly foolish. Um, but this evening, we, we really are introduced to Solomon in, in the court, if you will. Um, he's mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 12 when he's born, but, but really not mentioned uh, in the rest of the account of the life of David in 2 Samuel. But here in 1 Kings chapter 1, um, not only are we introduced to Solomon, but we see him come to the throne. Um, before we turn our attention then to 1 Kings 1, uh, we need to ask God for his help. So would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come as your people in this Lord's Day evening to hear once again from Holy Scripture. And above all, Lord, we need to hear the word of the Lord. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and that you would open our eyes of faith so that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. So because of the, the length of 1 Kings 1, uh, we're going to read uh, some selected sections from it. Uh, we're going to read the first 10 verses, uh, and then we're going to pick up uh, at verse 28 and read to verse 37 to give us some coverage in the chapter. So 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. Now, King David was old and advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, they, he could not get warm. Therefore, his servants said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag, the Shumanite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggath, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abathar, the priest. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei, and Ray, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened calf by the serpent stone, which is beside in Rogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaniah, or the mighty men, or Solomon's, Solomon, his brother. Now verse 28. Then King David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, 
as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my lord, King David, live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. And so they came before the king. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the, the God of my lord, the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my lord. King David. As far as God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was a tense moment in our nation's history. The election was bitter. The candidates slung insults at each other. The candidate from one party suggested that the candidate from the other party was having an affair. The candidate from the other party mocked the physical debilities of his opponent, suggesting that they made him unfit for high office. The election happened, and now was the moment of truth. Could power pass from one leader to another, or would there be machinations that would throw the country into chaos? Of course, I'm, I'm not talking about the 2020 presidential election. Actually, this is 1796, in which Adams and Jefferson were bitter opponents and Alexander Hamilton was conniving to get himself closer to the power. But, but when Inauguration Day, 1797, came, presidential power passed from George Washington to John Adams without a hitch. Adams was recognized as president. And lucky him, because of the way we held elections then, he had his bitter rival, Thomas Jefferson, as his vice president. But the crisis of succession past. For over two centuries, we've taken for granted the, the handing off of power from, from one president to the next. Yet when you look at the history of the world, the transfer of power, of succession, is fraught with danger, tension, and intrigue. And certainly that was the case in Israel. Remember, David is only the second king that they've had. He represented a, a new beginning, a new royal line. Though, though the, he had ruled for 40 years, the first king, Saul, was rejected as king. And his line was rejected. And in fact, his son, Jonathan, ceded his rights to the throne to David. He recognized that David would be king. And now, David himself has ruled for 40 years. God had promised him a dynasty, a forever king ruling over a forever kingdom, but how would that dynasty be established? It had all become murky after David's sin with Bathsheba. When, when the prophet Nathan confronted David, at, at first, David had proclaimed a, a fourfold judgment on the individual that Nathan had brought for his rule. Once, once David realized that, 
that the issue was actually his own sin. He repented before the Lord, but that fourfold judgment still came, removing several climates to the throne. Bathsheba's first child, Amnon, David's oldest, Absalom, they were all eliminated, and a fourth was yet to come. Yet the promise was still there. The promise of a dynasty. How would succession take place? Why does this matter to us? I mean, aside from an interesting story, why bother paying attention to this entire scene? Well, I think for you and me, this passage reminds us that we can trust God to keep his promises. He will accomplish his purpose, even though it looks murky and messy, even though it looks dicey and unclear, though there are many who try to manipulate and connive and we're anxious about the result, God will keep his promise. But further, we need to be reminded that that God actually uses people to keep his promises. Faithful people like Nathan, who speak truth to power. And it very well may be that, that God intends to use you in some way to further his cause in the world in a way that's completely unlooked for or unexpected. The final thing I think we can notice here, and we'll see this towards the end, is that this succession of of one king to the next king to the next king, though it does come to an end in 586 BC, the promises were still there. The promise of a forever king ruling over a forever kingdom, which means there had to be a succession that would be final. A final king who would come to rule over his world. This passage is pointing us ultimately to Jesus as our great king, and hence our great promise keeper. But before we can get there, it's important for us to recall that that what's going on here uh, in this opening part of this scene is is a period of great insecurity. The, The succession is unsecure. The Why had Israel entered into a time of insecurity? Well, the first words of the book tell you why. Uh, The first words that we read together in verse 1. Now, King David was old and advanced in years. David's weakness was why there was great insecurity. While it it seemed as though everything was unstable, everything solid was was up in the air. He, He had gotten to an age where he couldn't keep himself warm. And though the solution strikes us as kind of odd, right? Looking for a concubine who will come and lay beside the king. That seems a little weird. Wouldn't suggest that for you as you get older. But it seems weird, but it's actually an indication of what's going on. David's body is failing. He's going to die soon. And because of his weakness, there's a vacuum in power. And when there's a vacuum in leadership and power, someone is sure to try to fill that vacuum. And in this case, Adonijah attempts to do so. He is the fourth of David's sons born at Hebron, but he is the eldest remaining. Which means, according to the logic of the ancient Near Eastern world, Adonijah is the chief claimant to the throne. He is the obvious successor in terms of age, and in terms of the marriage order in David's household. And yet, we'll see that Adonijah's wickedness in the way he acted. Because rather than wait for God's appointment, 
or rather than, than hold on for his father's direction, what did verse 5 tell us? We read that together. Verse 5, Now Adonijah the son of Haggath exalted himself, saying, I will be king. This, this description and the way the, the historian writes it is meant to evoke the response that we, that we might have when we see a, 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 a car wreck about ready to happen. Oh, don't do that. No, 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 no. This isn't going to end well. Please don't do that. When Adonijah is described as exalting himself, as declaring himself to be the heir, as being someone who has never been told no, right? That's what the, the writer says. David never told him no. He's never been told no. But he's handsome also, as handsome as his, his older brother Absalom. And he's well-connected to boot. He has the head of the army behind him, Joab. He has the head of the priests behind him, Abathar. He has a great party inviting all of his brothers and all the royal officials, and they all come to celebrate his determination to be king. Everyone is there, except for Nathan, Benaniah, and Solomon. Verse 10 is the first time Solomon's name is mentioned. And really, the first time that Solomon's name is mentioned in any kind of important way since his birth in 2 Samuel 12. It's mentioned for a particular role. This is a kind of clue, verse 10 is. It's something that will be clarified as the succession itself is clarified. Now, we didn't read it this evening, but verses 11 to 27 feel like a a bunch of back and forth, kind of like a tennis match between two great tennis players, and the ball is volleying back and forth from different players. Because while Adonijah is partying and declaring himself king, Nathan and Bathsheba are going to work to remind David of God's purpose. Hinted back in 2 Samuel 12 when Solomon was born. You see, there in 2 Samuel 12, in the description of Solomon's birth, God gives Solomon a name. Not Solomon. No, God calls this child Jedediah, beloved of the Lord. This is my beloved son. God claims Solomon as his own. And it's a clue of what God's ultimate purpose is in the succession of David's family. And so in order to remind David, first, Nathan goes to Bathsheba in verses 11 to 14. And he urges Bathsheba to go to the king and to remind him of his purpose that Solomon would be king after David. Bathsheba then goes to David in verses 15 to 21 and says the very things that Nathan said to say, but she extends it further. She tells David, if Adonijah somehow becomes king, then Bathsheba and Solomon are endangered. They would be seen as enemies, as threats to the throne, those to be eliminated by death. And while Bathsheba is speaking, Nathan then comes to David in verses 22 to 27. And with tact and clarity, Nathan both reports what's happened, namely Adonijah has been declared king, but he also gently questions the king about his intentions. And all of this forces David to clarify the line of succession. And it comes in rapid succession. Solomon will be king. David's mule. David's closest advisors, David's throne, 
all would be given to Solomon on this very day. It was in this way that the succession which seemed so insecure is now secured. As the noise of Solomon's ascension was felt and heard, if you look at verse 40, um, the historian says, and all the people went up after Solomon, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. As this noise is rumbling through the earth, Adonijah and his guests receive the report of what's happened from their ally, Jonathan, who's the son of Abathar the priest. And what is Jonathan's message, essentially? The party's over. The party's over. Solomon's been made king. He's rode the king's mule. His allies have anointed him king. He sits on the royal throne. And beyond that, King David himself has blessed the new king. The party's over. Everyone scatters. I wondered as I envisioned this scene if they might have thought of the words from the rock band Sticks. The jig is up. The news is out. They finally found me. The renegade who had it made. They'll read more about me. Right? Wonder if they had those words. Maybe not. But certainly they knew that the party was over and the jig was up. They scatter and Adonijah fears for his life. And so he, he runs to the tabernacle in Jerusalem. He comes to the altar in the, in the courtyard by the holy place and he grabs hold of the horns. He believes that grabbing hold of the horns might, might grant him some asylum from the punishment that he deserves. And it does so. Though the party's over, Solomon's pity is secured with a warning. There in verse 52, you'll see Solomon saying, if he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. Now, as we'll see in the next chapter, uh, wickedness will be found in Adonijah, and he will be the fourth of David's sons to die fulfilling the self-proclaimed fourfold judgment for David's adultery with Bathsheba and for his murder of Uriah. But for now, simply consider this. In this entire story of succession, God kept his promise. He had promised David that one of his sons would sit on his throne. He promised that a dynasty would be established. He promised that the king would be like his own son. And in the ascension of Solomon, the beloved son, God kept his promise. It was dicey for a moment. David's weakness and Adonijah's wickedness conspired to make it so. And yet God kept his promise. Now listen, God will keep his promises to you. To be a God to you and your children after you to welcome you, to rescue you, to sanctify and to sustain you, to cause you to persevere, to bring you safely home. It might get dicey. There might be mess-ups and messy moments. There might be those who seek to destroy you. There might be oppression and opposition and obstinance, but God will keep his promises to you. He will not let you go. How do I know? How do I know that God will keep his promise to you? Well, certainly this scene tells us that God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. 
But I know because God keeps all his promises in his son, in Jesus Christ, the beloved one. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He keeps his promises in Jesus Christ, the one who is the yes and the amen, so that all of God's promises find their fulfillment in him. But ultimately, we believe that that God will keep his promises because we see that in his son, the succession is fulfilled. Jesus is the final king. He's the one who came to occupy the throne of his father, David. And when Jesus was inaugurated as king through his death, burial, and especially his resurrection, he was set on the eternal throne, one which he will never leave. Jesus was established in Zion as the anointed one, as God's son set on God's throne who laughs while the nations rage. There's no succession from Jesus. There's no king to follow him. No one who can usurp his place. No one who can storm the gates of heaven to pull Jesus from his throne. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to Jesus. He's been exalted to the Father's right hand, far above all principalities and powers and rulers. And because Jesus is the final king, the one who fulfills all of God's promises, when times get really out of hand, when things seem dicey, when everything seems as though it might try to pull you down, you can go to Jesus with this confidence that the God who has come to us in Jesus Christ will keep his promise. You can trust him. He won't let you go. He is a good, good savior. He's our king after all. Jesus, son of David, son of God, the ultimate fulfillment of this passage, he will keep his promises to you. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, these passages in places like 1 Kings, sometimes we wonder, what does this have to do with me? But when we come to see how all of Scripture finds its fulfillment ultimately in Jesus, then we begin to see that, that you are the one who is trying to drive us over and again to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. All of the Bible is about you. And you, you desire us to see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory, full of goodness and love for your people. And you, above all, you promise to keep your promises. You, you call us to trust you, even when the going is hard, even when things seem dicey. And so, Lord, we pray this night that you would grant us grace to rest our hearts in you because you are a good, good Savior and you care for us and rule over us through Jesus the King. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.